Who would have imagined? A virgin with child, a fiance's acceptance, a lowly cattle stall, forewarn shepherd, angels, wise men, and an overcrowded nothing of a city called Bethlehem. Who would have imagined that the very one who spoke the world into being would crowd his deity into the body of the helpless one? The one who hung the stars would be greeted by the star shining brightly over his manger. This is the mystery of Christmas. This is the story that has been told and retold for thousands of years. And all the telling and retelling, the mystery still remains. Our hearts and our minds are held captive by the possibilities that God would love so much that he would send his only son to die in our place, making us right with him. This is the mystery of Christmas. This is the adventure of December. Let's journey together to the star-flooded fields, to a lowly stable, to shivering young parents, and behold God in flesh. As we behold, let us do more than gaze. Let us worship. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a child is given. This is the mystery of Christmas. As a pastor, Christmas could be the most difficult season to write sermons because it's the same material over and over and over again. Uh, Y'all don't feel my pain, do you? But the reality, that word mystery sparked me this, this, this Christmas season. That, and we, we deemed this whole series the mystery of Christmas after a bit of a struggle for me to even come up with some titles. Usually Dan will tell you that I'm a year in advance when it comes to Christmas. I, don't, I said, I don't know, we'll preach on Jesus. But the mystery, the, the, just the, the word itself is kind of pregnant with, with meaning and awe. What does it mean to be mysterious? Is it myth? Well, we don't like to deal with myth, do we? We're here in the Western world, we, we like to deal with facts and we like to deal with scientific evidence. We don't deal with myth, we, we deal with evidence. But then there comes Christmas and the mystery of God's rescue and God incarnate and shepherds and wise men and angels and all those things. They bring up all kinds of questions for us, like what is going on here? Did a virgin really conceive? Did angels appear to shepherds in a field at night? Were there wise men who came from afar? What is the deal here? Is this a concocted story of mythology like the Greeks would have or the Assyrians would have or the Babylonians would have or the Hindus would have or the other ancient worlds would have? Is this true? And the evidence is overwhelming that it is. And it's contained in the mystery of Christ. So over the next several weeks until Christmas Eve, we're going to peel back the mystery of Christmas. We're going to look at what the prophets said. We're going to look at the people that were involved. In fact, next week, if you're coming for a musical event, you're not going to get a musical event. You're going to get some great music, but you're going to hear the truth of the gospel as well. And you'll get to see the gospel portrayed as best as we can portray it here in Wimberley in our bathrobes and towels around our heads. But it's all about the mystery and then, of course, on Christmas Eve, the mystery will be beheld and we will worship him, Christ, the newborn king. But until that time, we'll worship him because Christmas is not a contained fact in history. It's an ongoing experience in the believer's heart. 
that God has come near and he's come near to rescue you and to me. So today, let's lean in. Let's begin this adventure together. Let's look at what the prophet said about Jesus and let's see what the mystery that came flesh means for you and me. What was foretold so long ago has now become evident in our lives today. And I hope you're ready for this because I'm ready to go. Y'all ready? So Father, thank you for what you want to say to us this morning. And I pray, Father, that you will speak through me. That'll not be my thoughts or my words or my opinion, but Father, your truth that will lead us to all freedom. And I thank you for what you're going to do. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Some scholars have said this, the hinge of history hangs on a stable in Bethlehem. And I wrote this statement. I want you to see it. It's up on the screen. The birth of Jesus was foretold and that foretelling defines his reality. In the fullness of time, the longing of the human heart was satisfied by a baby born, a savior revealed, a vicarious death, and a glorious resurrection that you might know the mystery of Christmas. That you might know the mystery of Christmas. So I want to talk to you this morning about this mystery. But the first thing I want to say, it might hurt your heads a little bit because I'm going to be talking about something that maybe I should not talk about. In fact, I told Tara, I called her a little while ago, Tara's my wife, and I called her and I said, baby, I'm a little worried because I might swim into a creek that I can't swim across. It said, you'll just drown, you'll be fine. Someone will rescue me, right? But I want to talk to you about the myths that floated around in Jesus' time. And the first myth was the myth of a super king. You see, in all these ancient religions, these ancient movements, and these ancient metaphysical kind of thoughts in the Greek mythology and in the, in the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians, there was this myth that a super king would rise up for their people. And in fact, and I hope this doesn't really bore you, but the Babylonians believed that there was this woman named Samaria and she had a son named Tammuz and and she was a virgin and she conceived and gave birth to him. And Tammuz was then mauled by animals and died. And three days later, he rose again. And that was one of the myths that was out there about the super king. Did, did y'all do that? I'm sorry that you do now. But that was not just that, just that myth. It was very common for them to talk about super kings that were, uh, gods would impregnate human beings and they would bring up people like Hercules other Greek myths that were brought up because it was a God intervention. And so when Jesus comes along, he comes along into a culture that kind of was like yawning with the familiarity of this account. So I got to analyzing this. I know it's hard to believe that I might analyze something, but I started analyzing this and I said, why in the world would God choose this pathway if this this garbage was out there already and it was so not true and it was so the manifestation of a man's mind that I realized this, Satan is the great counterfeiter. And he wants to counterfeit you so that you will not notice the truth when it comes upon you. When we were in Nicaragua recently, we'd give American money and they would analyze it very carefully before they took it as currency because there's counterfeits in the world. Did you know that? In fact, one time I returned from Bali, turned in uh, Balinese money to our treasurer that we had left over, gave it to her, to her, our accountant, gave it to her, and she notified me that all of it was counterfeit. That's great. 
counterfeit is worth nothing. And the counterfeit myths of that day of the super king were worth nothing until a super king was born in Bethlehem. So many years before Isaiah said these things. Let me read it for you. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. On the in, of the increase of his government and of peace there'll be no end, and the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, the zeal of the Lord of angels' armies or the armies of heaven will, over, will, will make sure it happens. You see, in this super king, who is not a myth, but God in flesh, the God-man, Jesus Christ, what he revealed to us was the need of our hearts. And I look at this list that Isaiah prophesies about and looking at the reality of Christ and realize that everything he said about Jesus, I need. And so do you knew. You need a wonderful counselor. And that's not someone that you lay on a couch and he gives you advice. That's someone who, this word counselor means someone who could orchestrate, orchestrate and administrate the details of your existence. You need a wonderful counselor, don't you? I have a wife. She's a counselor. She instructs me on various things of my life. What I should wear. What I should not wear. I left this morning before she saw me good. <laughs> How I should drive. What I should eat. What I should not eat. But I have a wonderful counselor named Jesus who is the one who knows the details of my life and is not concerned with the things that do not matter, but is concerned with all the matters. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He's God enough to quiet the storms of my soul, God enough to heal the afflictions of my body, God enough to rescue me from my depravity and sin and God enough to take me home to be with him in glory. He's a mighty God. I heard a song this week. I can't remember who sang it. Maybe Lauren Daigle. It seems like that's all I hear these days. And um, we get in my truck and Tara plugs in her phone and I get to listen to her music. Any of y'all like that? I love it. But I was listening to this song and it, it talked about how, how Jesus is the one who's enough. And because he's the mighty God, he's enough. And that he can give me strength I need to live on. He, he's, he's enough. A few weeks ago, I talked about uh, be freedom from worry and anxiety. And I talked about that when we're content, Jesus gives you strength. But I, what I realized in that, that promise with the premise, the strength of Christ coming from the contentment in Christ, that I have to believe that Jesus is enough. And that when I believe that Jesus is enough, he gives me strength. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. When I look for my sufficiency in Christ instead of his sufficiency in myself 
or in my wealth or in my knowledge or my whatever. And I look for it in Christ and I can have the strength I need to live on because he's the mighty God. But then I heard this from Isaiah. He said this, that he is the everlasting father. And I, I thought, well, okay, what, what does that mean? Then I realized that in 2007, I said goodbye to my earthly father. But I will never say goodbye to my everlasting father. Though all the twists and turns of my life, he is always with me. He goes before me. He goes behind me. He goes above me. He goes below me. He goes on each side of me. He's the king of glory, and he's the one who will never let me go. He will never leave me nor forsake me. He will never give up on me. I cannot out him. I cannot out-stupid him. He is everlasting, and everlasting is his name. But then I look at this last thing, and he's the prince of peace. I can face anything when I have peace, can't you? When the peace of God settles in over the rough waters of my soul, there's the calming effect that God is with me and his peace abides in me. Jesus said this to his disciples on the night he was betrayed. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives unto you, give I to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Neither let them be afraid. Because he is the prince of peace. What does that mean? He's the royal priest of peace. And he has unlimited reach of his peace. The extent of his reach and his government and his peace will have no end. It's, it's unlimited. It's not limited by impeachment processes, y'all. It's not limited by economic ups and downs or doctor's diagnosis. His peace extends throughout time and without limit. And then I saw this phrase in this passage from Isaiah, and it said, on the King David's throne, and I realized this, it may be, maybe this will be something interesting to you. It wasn't just a peace that was promised in a vacuum, but it was a peace that was promised through a process of covenant. That in the Abrahamic covenant, in the Davidic covenant, in the Mosaic covenant, in the Adibic covenant, in the Noadic covenant, all these covenants were leading to the covenant promise of Jesus Christ. Let me give you two of them in order. The Adibic covenant is that I will bring a rescuer because you've said and I will rescue the Noadic covenant. I will not destroy you, but I will give you a promise that I will redeem you. The Mosaic covenant, I will give you a promise of law that you will have order in your life because I'm going to redeem you and I'm going to one day take the law that I've written in stone and write it on your heart. The Abrahamic covenant, I will raise up from you out of the root of you who is, who is unfertile, barren. I will raise up from you a savior for all the world. And of course, the Davidic covenant that on the throne of King David will sit an everlasting father. And so it's the promise of King Jesus was systematic, foretold, and the promise that God has been moving throughout history. Have y'all ever heard of a pastor named uh, W.A. Criswell? Have y'all ever heard of him? He was pastor of First Baptist Dallas and a great pontificator, a great gospel preacher. 
I've always wanted to do this. In fact, I might do this if, if, if I live long enough and you endure me long enough, maybe I will do this. I want to preach through the scarlet thread of salvation through the entire Bible for you over a year. How he shows the scarlet thread of redemption throughout the whole Bible. That the covenant promise of God is true. That God is for you and not against you. And he's been for you before he created the world. Wow. And Isaiah said it and that promise came true. And the infant cry shattered the Bethlehem night with the covenant fulfilled. Wow. But then there's justice and righteousness. The cross brought the righteousness of God and the justice of God to us, the flawed human, and given by him to us. In Zechariah chapter three, we see a, a, Zechariah has this vision, and we see the covenant promise of the cross unfold before Zechariah. And I wanna read this for you. I think you'll find it fascinating. And he showed me Yeshua, or Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Satan is the accuser. Satan is the counterfeit. Satan is the one who made all these people in these ancient worlds, thought of these super kings, so that when Christ would come, people would be deceived that it was, there was just something normal. And Satan is standing there in heaven in this vision from Zechariah, and he's accusing the, the high priest. And the Lord said to Satan, I love what the Lord says to Satan. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. It is not this brand plucked from the fire. Is this not a brand? Or one translation said, is this man not a stick snatched from the fire? Years ago, I was preaching this passage and there was a guy in our church named Kyle Hardesty, who I love dearly. And he was one of the founders of Parkway Church. And as I preached this, I noticed he began to cry. And I thought, sermon ain't that bad. Afterwards, he said, Scott, you spoke to me tonight. I said, how so? And he said, when you said, is this man not a stick snatched from the fire? I knew it was me you were talking about. Because when I was 18 months old, I fell into the fire. And my brother rescued me and put me out. And I want to tell you something, my friends. You have been rescued from the fire. And some of you, you're still smoldering. And you smell like smoke. But through Christ, he's rescued you. Now Yeshua, or Joshua, was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. The word filthy garments is literally the Hebrew word for excrement. If you don't know what excrement is, let me translate it into Texan. Poop. If you're offended by that, I can translate it further, shall I? Okay, we're good, right? He's covered in excrement. And the angel said to those standing before him, Remove the filthy garments for him. And he said to him, Behold, I've taken away your iniquity from you, and I'll clothe you with pure vestments. And I will say, Let them put a clean turban on his head. And they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord, literally in Scripture in the Old Testament, is the pre incarnate Jesus Christ. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Jesus Christ was standing there to remove the iniquity from this man's life. 
And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Yeshua, or Joshua, thus saith the Lord of hosts, you will walk in my ways. And this is what he's saying to you. Now I want you to listen to this. You will walk in my ways and you will keep my charge and you will rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. And now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for you are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch, that's Jesus Christ. For behold, on the stone that I have set before you, Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscriptions, declare the Lord of hosts. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite your neighbor to come under your vine and under your fig tree. Why are we people who share our hope? Because we are people who've been cleansed of our iniquities. The myth of the super king became flesh and he dwelt among us. The mystery of the incarnation became the majesty <coughs> of King Jesus. Then there was the myth of rescue. Throughout the ancient world, there would be some heroic figure that would rise up out of their mythology that would come and rescue them from some calamity or some fate. <clears throat> so when Jesus came along to rescue, it was the counterfeit of culture was brought about the reality of the rescuing Savior. Listen to what Isaiah said in chapter 53. Are y'all with me? I'm giving y'all lots of stuff today. Y'all with me? All right. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. And he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. We, he was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one whom men hide their face, he was despised and esteemed not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah talked about our need. And he talked about our Savior. Long before Christ broke through human history, the promise was told that he would come and do what he did. The unbelievable is now believable. The unrighteous are now the righteous. Who has believed I reported? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I've said this to you before, but I want to remind you. In Psalm chapter 8, the Lord talks about creation being his finger play. It's the work of his fingers. He created, and it was easy for him to create it. But when it came time to rescue us, he rolled up his sleeves. He revealed his arms. Because salvation was the hard work of God. But I want to explain this text a little further for you because some people misinterpret this. And they say that he had no beauty. And I've heard preachers preach this, and, and I've, I've kind of paused. And I said, is this true? Do y'all ever do that when preachers preach? <laughs> yeah, you do it every week. I know you do. 
And so I paused and I looked at that and it says that he had no beauty that we should gaze upon him. And I've heard some preachers say this, that Jesus was an ugly man. Well, somehow that gave me hope, but, but literally, is, literally is that what they're saying? That Jesus was the most compelling figure and is the most compelling figure of human history. He was the God man, the perfect man. Was he an ugly man? They said, well, it says here that he had no beauty that we should look upon him. And then I realized they were talking not about his physical appearance as he roamed this planet, but they were talking about his physical appearance as he was hung on a cross. And the sins was laid upon him. And listen to me, y'all. Sin makes you ugly. And surely he has borne our sins. And surely he has borne our sorrows. And the chastisement for all of us. And by his stripes we were healed. Now some people think that by his stripes that we have physical healing. And obviously we do. But is physical healing a part of the atonement of Christ? And I would say it's not. Because if physical healing were part of the atonement of Christ... Those of us who are Christians would never die. But wait a second. We don't. We don't. We get to live forever. And because he took those physical affirmities on himself and his stripes healed us from our greatest, greatest problem is spiritual death. He healed us that we might be Healed forever. One day you're going to hear that I died. Don't believe it. I'll be more alive than I've ever been. Because that is the truth of Jesus Christ. And he has borne this for us. The myth of salvation, the myth of rescue has been revealed. You see, because these things were no myth, these things were the promise of God, were the promise of God. And this is what he said to us. I will redeem you. I will buy you back. Because you were sold into the bondage of sin and became a slave to sin, I will redeem you. I will buy you back. And y'all... You're expensive. You cost a lot. You're no Black Friday special. He paid much too high a price for you. Paul said it this way, for we've been bought with a price, therefore glorify, your, glorify God in your body that we've been redeemed. He says, I will forgive you. Though your sins be as scarlet, they should become as white as snow. You know, I, I listen to that theologically and I kind of understand that, you know, in my mind, logically. But I have a hard time grasping it practically because I think there are some sins that God ought not forgive. Am, am I by myself? Am I just only that one with that wicked, perverted, warped thinking? I'm thinking that there's some things people do that they just ought to go to hell for. 
Am I by myself? Well, there's a few honest people in the room. But the truth is, Jesus saves sinners. I think I've told you this once, and I'm going to tell you again because this greatly disturbs me. I talked to a friend of mine who's a Lutheran pastor that allegedly his great-grandfather was Hitler's chaplain. And then when right before Hitler died, Hitler gave his life to Christ. That bothers me. I don't want to be in heaven with Hitler, do you? Rumor has it that Jeffrey Dahmer, the cannibal, gave his life to Jesus in, in prison before he was brutally murdered by a fellow prisoner. That bothers me, that there would be a serial killer, a cannibal, in heaven. It kind of eats at me. Sorry. Don't give me the cold shoulder over that, okay? But the truth is Jesus saves sinners. And it bothers me that he would because I would prefer heaven to be full of the purified, wouldn't you? But it is. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. I will forgive you. Come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and you'll find rest for your soul. Put my yoke upon you, for you'll find it easy. My burden is light. Come to me and be healed. Come, ye sinners, weak and weary, sick and sore, and I'll save you. I'll save you. I'll forgive you. I'll redeem you. And I love that about King Jesus. And I will restore you. When I wrote this phrase, I will restore you, so many things flooded my mind. And I want to tell you this, church. God is in the process of restoring us as a church family. Did you know that? As we go through a season of renewal and revitalization, and and I, I prayed for years that I would see a revival in my lifetime. And I'm seeing it here in Wimberley. A revival is not a series of meetings we attend. Revival is a changing of hearts that we experience. And I'm watching God take an old 135-year-old church, an old girl with two artificial hips, and teaching her how to dance again. And I'm amazed by that. But I think of my personal restoration how it's ongoing, how he renews me every day. He reminds me of his faithfulness every day. He reminds me of his love every day. This morning, I woke up with an unusual amount of discouragement, an unusual amount of dread, an unusual amount of inadequacy and insecurity. I called Tara and I said, I need extra prayer because today's a hard day. And she says, why is it so hard? I said, because I'm going to be dealing with a lot of complex passages and I'm going to probably say things that are going to get me into trouble. And she says, What's, why is that different from any other day? <laughs> then I realized that I will restore you and I will help you and I will strengthen you.
and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And that's not just for me, y'all, it's for you. That whatever you're going through, whatever you're enduring, whatever you're facing, God is the one who's in the process of restoring. He's in the process of restoring your children. He's in the process of restoring our nation. He is the God of restoration. He says, I will love you. I will love you with a love that will not let you go. I will love you. I don't fully understand love. I struggle with the concept. I know it's a decision based on commitment. It brings strong emotions and feelings, but it's not a feeling or emotion. It's a decision. But I do know this, that those emotions are strong when it comes to love. And I know when God says, I will love you, he means it. And he not only has the intellectual decision, the choice to love you, but he also has the emotion, compassion to love you. He knows you're just dust. He's tender and compassionate for you. And he loves you. Oh, I could give you illustrations about grandchildren and dogs and spouses and college football, but I don't love the Seminoles anymore. (laughs) But you know what I do? I know that God loves me. There's a little children's song we used to sing. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves even me. Then he says this, and I love this. I will make you mine. I will make you mine. For we don't have a spirit of fear, of timidity that leads to fear. But we have a spirit that cries out, Daddy. Abba, Father. That we've been adopted into his family. That are written upon my heart is not the name of Scott, it's the name of Jesus. Because he, he made me his. And he did that when I was seven. And he's reminding me that now that I'm older than seven. And he's reminding you of that as well. He will make you his. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This, my friend, is the mystery of Christmas. And it is no myth. It is truth.